Remain standing for our gospel lesson, also our sermon text from John 18. Pay close attention because this is God's gospel. And I'll start in verse 12. Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the, out, at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out. And spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those Who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well... Why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you for this text, Father, for this revelation of you and also a revelation of us, who we are, and our redemption, and our need for redemption in Christ. Help us to marvel at your goodness, and to see more clearly your love for us, and our redemption, your redemption of us from the depths of sin. Do this by the power of your Spirit working in us and among us. And in the name of Jesus and for his sake, amen. Please be seated. 
Well, I hope our journey through John has cultivated in you an increasing love for God's Word as it has for me uh, to see this living and active Word that, that John and the Holy Spirit working through John have given to us. In last week's passage, we saw that while Peter was taking up his sword, Jesus was taking up his cross. And in this week's passage, once again, the two main characters are Jesus and Peter. But they're not characters in the same story, you may have noticed. Our text today, John 18... 13 to 27, and you can turn there in your Bibles. We'll be walking through those verses. Our text today is actually two stories woven together into one passage. This is a literary technique that John is using. In one story, Jesus is being questioned. In the other story, Peter is being questioned. In one story, Jesus points to his followers as those who will bear witness to him and his teaching and his identity. In the other story, Peter is given a chance to bear witness to Jesus and his teaching and his identity. In one story, the true high priest is not treated like one. In the other story, the lead disciple of Jesus does not act like one. So these two stories are interwoven into one great story of redemption. If you ever have Peter moments in your walk with Christ, then this text is for you. If you ever have times when you fail to act like the disciple that you are, the disciple that Jesus has made you and is making you into, then you need this narrative, this text, this story you need to know about this, these events that really happened. A few hours earlier, <clears throat> Peter, <clears throat> excuse me, Peter had assured Jesus that even if everyone else falls away, even if all the other apostles desert you, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. I'll be the last man standing for you if it comes to that. Have you ever made promises to God that turned out to be empty promises? Lord, I'm going to start being a more courageous witness when I'm around unbelievers. I'm going to stop giving in to that peer pressure. Lord, I'm going to repent of of that sin that I just committed and, and avoid it for the rest of my life. I'm going to be strong for you, Lord, from here on. I'm a new man, I'm a new woman, I'm a new boy, I'm a new girl. The good news which Peter is about to discover over the next few days is that when we are unfaithful, when we are lacking in faith, when our faith and faithfulness is little, Jesus is just as faithful as he always has been and always will be. When we are untrue disciples... When we have those Peter moments, Jesus remains the true high priest who atones for our sins and who intercedes for us so that we don't fall away for good. 
like Peter's story, your story of falling short of God's glory is interwoven with Christ's story of perfect faithfulness, perfect holiness. And together, they create one great story of your redemption, which is the work of Christ alone, not your work, but him working in you and through you. So if you have your Peter moments, and we all do, you need the instruction and the encouragement and the gospel promise that this passage offers. We stopped last week at verse 12, where Jesus surrendered himself to the Jews who bound him and arrested him. And if you missed that, or if you've missed maybe several uh, sermons in the last few weeks or months, then we just started a new section in John's gospel, a new major section that begins in chapter 18 and goes through the end of the book. And so you can go and hear last week's sermon and be on track and caught up with this major section of John's gospel. But we ended in verse 12 where he's bound and he's arrested. And in today's passage, Jesus is brought before the high priest, it says, for questioning. And it's, of course, a makeshift trial in a kangaroo court. But the author, John, is not actually all that interested in the legal procedures, the legitimacy of this trial. There's, there's questions about that. Scholars debate and, and write on whether this was legitimate or how legitimate it really was. And those are fine discussions topics of research, but the author is not all that interested in the legal procedures and the Jewish authorities involved. His focus in this passage is on the witness of Christ and the witness of his disciple, Peter, or perhaps we should say the anti-witness of Simon Peter. The faithless cowardice of Peter appears in this text in sharp contrast to the faithful courage of Jesus. And so this passage will help us to see the true foundation of Christian discipleship and it'll encourage us to serve as faithful witnesses to Christ in the world. You can be certain that this event in Peter's life helped him, encouraged him, instructed him to increasing faithfulness the rest of his life. There's another contrast in this passage, though, that we need to see, in addition to the one between Jesus and Peter. And I'm talking about the contrast between the two high priests, or maybe we should say the three high priests, and I'll explain what I mean later. Caiaphas is the high priest that year, it says in verse 13, but Jesus is the true high priest forever. You'll notice the temporal modifier there. He's the high priest that year. Later, the book of Hebrews will tell us that Jesus is the high priest, not just for a year or a decade or a century or a millennium, but forever. So there's a contrast there as well. And this passage will help us to see more fully the person and work of Jesus as our high priest. So those are some of the things going on in the text from a, from a bird's eye view. 
So right after Jesus is, a, is bound and arrested in verse 12, he's brought before the high priest's father-in-law in verse 13, and they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So, in, so verse 13 introduces us to the context and the characters, the main characters involved in the Jewish trial of Jesus. And I say the Jewish trial because, as we'll see next time, there's, there's going to be a Roman trial as well. The Jewish trial includes Annas, who was, who was the high priest at one time in the past, and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who was the current high priest. We get an indication that, Caiaphas, or that Annas was also a high priest at some point in Luke 3, which references the high priest, plural, Annas and Caiaphas. Josephus fleshes that out for us with some historical background. So verse 13, though, still raises some questions, at least in the book of John. When you're reading through the book of John, you get to verse 13, and some questions arise. If Caiaphas is the current high priest, you know, you just told us that he's the high priest. You made a point to tell us that. Why wasn't Jesus taken to him rather than to his father-in-law? Annas. And why are we told about Annas's interrogation of Jesus anyway? Why, we're not even told about the interrogation of Caiaphas, the, the actual high priest. We just, it, it's said that it happened, but no details. Why, why the details about Caiaphas's? Right after telling us that Annas is the high priest that year. Well, there, there are two answers to these questions. The first answer is historical. The second is theological. The, the historical answer has to do with the identity of Annas, as I alluded to, and the nature of the Jewish high priest in the first century, at least according to Josephus, what we can gather from reading Josephus. According to that Jewish historian Josephus, Annas had been the high priest when Jesus was a boy from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. And Annas was also succeeded, according to Josephus, by all five of his sons. Now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, holds the office. So what this means is that Annas was something of a patriarch of the high priestly family. He was likely considered the most influential, the most important member of the family. And so it was natural for the authorities to bring Jesus to Annas the patriarch instead of Caiaphas. So it makes some sense historically. But the theological and literary answer is more interesting. John, the author, is being intentionally cryptic about the way he refers to the high priest in this passage that we just read. By the time we get to verse 24, we're not sure who the real high priest is. Is it Caiaphas or is it Annas? And let me show you what I mean. In verse 13, the text clearly says two things. It says Jesus was taken to Annas first, and it says that Caiaphas was the high priest that year. But then when we come back to this scene in verse 19... Look down there at verse 19. When we get back to this scene after the Peter, Peter's first denial scene, the text says in verse 19 that the one 
questioning Jesus first is the high priest. In other words, verse 19 refers to Annas as the high priest. Now, you might be thinking, well, maybe, maybe John just skips ahead to, to the second interrogation of Caiaphas. But that, we're going to find out that's not the case. But just at this point, when we get to verse 19, we're, we're confused a little bit. Verse 13 says, Caiaphas is the current high priest, and yet Annas is the high priest appearing to be asking these questions in verses 19 to 23. And verse 24 confirms this, confirms that Annas is the one actually asking the questions in verses 19 to 23, because it says that Annas, after he had finished questioning Jesus, sent him to Caiaphas, the high priest. That's in verse 24, after the questioning in verses 19 to 23. So let me just recap that. What we have is this. In verse 13, Caiaphas is referred to as the high priest. In verse 19, Annas is called the high priest. And in verse 24, Caiaphas is again given the designation of high priest. And so I thought about titling this sermon, Will the Real High Priest Please Stand? After all, there's only one functioning high priest at a time. So what's the point here? What's, why this cryptic depiction of the high priest? And by the way, scholars debate in verse 19, is this referring to Annas or Caiaphas because it's unclear? I think if you look at Luke 3 and then verse 24, there's only one way to take it. It's Annas asking those questions in verses 19 to 23. But why, why is John doing this? One of the main points of this text is that in this trial, neither Caiaphas nor Annas is truly acting like the high priest. Only Jesus is properly functioning as the faithful high priest. Only Jesus is able to fulfill the biblical requirements of that office. Caiaphas is actually a false high priest. He's already shown himself to be unwilling to bear the iniquity of the people, as the high priest was supposed to do. Remember, back in Exodus. In the Old Testament, the high priest was appointed by God to be the atoning mediator between God and his people Israel. The high priest bore, in some sense, the sin of the people and took it away by taking it upon himself. But look at verse 14. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And that one man that Caiaphas had in mind was not himself. He's not willing to die for the people. He's not willing to be the high priest. He thinks someone else should bear that burden. In particular, he thinks Jesus should. Let me remind you of what Caiaphas had said back in John 11. The, the context is that the chief priests and the Pharisees are trying to figure out what to do with this Jesus guy who's rising in popularity, teaching the people, leading them astray, according to them. And then Caiaphas, the high priest, pipes up and he says, you know nothing at all. You're all fools. Nor do you understand that it is 
that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John goes on to comment, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. If Caiaphas knew that one man needed to die for the people, why wasn't he, the current high priest, willing to offer himself? Why doesn't he offer himself? That's what a true high priest would do. That's what a biblical high priest would do. That's what a faithful high priest would do. That's what Jesus is doing at this very moment, acting as the true biblical high priest. By advising the Jews to kill someone else, someone besides himself, Caiaphas is actually admitting that he's not qualified to be the high priest. He's, he's unwilling as well as unable to bear the people's sin burden. He's an anti-high priest. There's only one man in this passage who exemplifies the qualifications for the office of high priest. Only one man willing and able to bear the iniquity of the people, as Exodus 28 puts it. Only one man willing and able to mediate between God and his people. And that man is not Annas. That man is not Caiaphas. That man is the God-man, Jesus Christ. We're, We're reminded also in that passage from John 11, where Caiaphas says that, that Caiaphas didn't say this of his own accord. And his own authority, he was being directed by God. Jesus didn't go to the cross because of the political maneuvering of Caiaphas or the political maneuvering of anyone else, for that matter. He went to the cross because of the cosmological maneuvering of God. The determination of Caiaphas to kill Jesus was governed by the predetermined will of God. God decrees everything. Everything happens in accordance with his will, his perfect will. In verse 15, John changes the scene. He transitions to Simon Peter, to an event happening more or less simultaneously. And Simon Peter is depicted, ironically, as following Jesus. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple, the anonymous disciple with Peter, was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So there's irony here in describing Peter as following Jesus because Peter is about to be Denying Jesus. He's about to to become a denier of the Christ. He's about to deny being a follower of Jesus. 
we've, we've already experienced that John likes to keep himself anonymous in his gospel. Elsewhere, he refers to himself as the beloved disciple, the disciple that Jesus loved. Here he refers to himself, likely, as the other disciple who, was, who knew the high priest. We can't, we can't know with absolute certainty that that's what's happening here, but this is, it's likely John, one of the sons of thunder, one of the twelve, one of the three in the inner circle, and the author, likely the author, almost certainly the author of the fourth gospel. Verse 16 says, But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. The the girl at the door confirms, by the way, that that this took place in the courtyard connected to Annas' house and not in the temple precincts. Only men served in the temple. So this scene must have taken place, which the text indicates on the surface anyway, in the courtyard of Annas on his personal property. It's not unlikely, too, that Annas and Caiaphas lived in different houses while sharing a common courtyard, a common area where these events are taking place. Verse 17, then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Peter was more afraid of the maidservant than he was of denying Christ. As Calvin put it, the voice of a mere woman terrified Peter. And what was true of Peter in this moment is often true of us. We, we fear the face of men whom we can see more than we fear the eye of God whom we cannot see. Verse 16 portrayed Peter as an outsider, even using that word outside. He stood outside the door. Now in verse 17, Peter is acting like an outsider. John John is painting him as an outsider, even when he compares himself to Peter, when when he says the other disciple was on the inside, he knew the high priest, and Peter was on the outside. Now Peter is acting like an outsider to Christ. Then verse 18 makes it dramatically clear that Peter identifies as an outsider to Christ. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold. And they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. So so John is continuing to paint this picture of Peter's outsider status. Verse 18 serves as a commentary on the words that Peter just uttered in verse 17. The slaves and servants that were sent to arrest and, and bind Jesus in the garden are warming themselves by a charcoal fire. And among these Christ haters is none other than the apostle Peter. The image of fire expresses the community and intimacy 
belonging. Fire creates fellowship, especially when it's cold outside, right? The fire has a tendency to create warm feelings among those who are gathered around it. Fires are community creators. And Peter has chosen his community in this moment. The last sentence of verse 18 is striking. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. He's with them, not with Christ. Has there ever been a more unlikely fellowship, a more ironic community? Peter is standing with and warming himself with the very same servants that he attacked in the garden with his sword just moments before. This illustrates how quickly, if given the chance, how quickly we would return to the city of destruction, to the community of unredeemed sinners out of which Jesus has saved us. Peter is not alone in his inclination to fall away and to desert, to desert Christ. So while Peter is sharing in their fire and their fellowship, Jesus, his Lord, is being questioned and physically assaulted for being the true and faithful high priest. Verse 19, the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Another way of translating the word then in verse 19 is meanwhile. Meanwhile, the high priest asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Remember, John is is weaving these two stories together and we're supposed to see them unfolding at the same time. So that when we get to the end of it, we're seeing both stories, each story end simultaneously. Annas, the high priest emeritus, asks Jesus about two matters, his disciples and his doctrine. The first part of the question about his disciples may have, we don't know for sure exactly, we're not giving a lot of details, but it may have had to do with the size of his following and the potential for some kind of uprising, a revolution, conspiracy. The second part of the question had to do with his teaching, his theology, which is really what the Jewish authorities were mainly concerned about. When they, when they bring Jesus to Pilate for the, for the Roman trial, they're going to pretend to be concerned about politics, you know, about, about Rome and what they're going to think about this revolution that Jesus is leading. But at the core of their concern is Christ's claim to be the Son of God. Of God. They just hate Jesus. They hate God. Jesus answers Annas in verses 20 and 21. Jesus answered them, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I've said nothing. Verse 21, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. In verse 19, remember, we were told that Annas asked Jesus a question. But, 
want you to notice this. When it comes to actual recorded words, you know, words and quotation marks, Jesus is the first one who speaks. And you'll also notice that in the entire passage, none of the words of Annas or Caiaphas get recorded. And this is the narrator's way of portraying Jesus as the true and functioning high priest in this scene. He's the real questioner, interrogator. In fact, in verses 21 and 23, Jesus is the one asking the questions and giving the directives, the orders. He's the one leading this trial, this interrogation, and his persecutors are the ones actually on trial. Verse 20, Jesus addresses Annas' question about his doctrine, and he, he states emphatically in verse 20 that he's spoken openly to the world. He's taught both in the temple and in the synagogues. His teaching ministry wasn't secretive, it, it, he's got nothing to hide. Sure, he did speak to his disciples privately often, but the core of his message, his gospel, his teaching, his claims about himself have been in the open for all to hear, for all, all to respond to with faith. Then in verse 21, he addresses the question about his disciples. And he does so in a way that connects his doctrine to his disciples, especially to Peter. I'm going to show you what I mean. He says in verse 21, essentially, why are you asking me? Why are you questioning me? Why don't you go and question the people who have heard my teaching? And the implication almost seems to be, especially those maybe who have heard it the most, Now, Jesus has been a lot of places. He's spoken, he's taught a lot of people in various contexts over the last three, three and a half years or so. However, who had heard him teach more than anyone else? The 12, right? And among the 12, who had been with him the most? The three, James, John, and Peter. And among the three disciples closest to Jesus, who was the first to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? In other words, who was the first to grasp Jesus' doctrine, Jesus' teaching? It was Peter. So when Jesus says in verse 21, don't ask me, go ask those who heard me teach. They can tell you. When he says this, he's saying in essence that the ideal person for you to go question would be Peter. No one heard Jesus more than Peter. No one understood the doctrine of Christ more than Peter the disciple. Meanwhile, Peter is denying that he is one of the disciples. While Jesus is insisting that those who heard him would be reliable witnesses to his teaching, 
in his identity, Peter, the leader of the twelve, is denying Jesus and sharing in the fire and fellowship of Christ-haters. The contrast here is stark and penetrating. And if it's not clear, we are to identify with Peter. Of course, Jesus wasn't wrong. He wasn't being naive about his disciples and Peter in particular. Over the last 2,000 years, he's created millions of faithful witnesses. Even Peter, by the grace of God, turned out to be a reliable witness. And Jesus, through his spirit, continues to make suitable witnesses. That's what you're called to be, a faithful, courageous witness to the teaching and identity of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to be and to do as the church, as a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the main duties in our job description as a body of Christ is to bear witness to the world about the truth that we have heard. We've also heard Jesus teach. This message is how God creates new sons and daughters. It's the means by which he pulls people out of the world. One commentator put it this way. Just as Jesus is the word become flesh, so the church is the flesh become word. Declaring the grace, truth, and love of the Father which they received from the Son. Let me read that again. Just as Jesus is the Word become flesh, flesh, so the church is the flesh become Word, declaring the grace, truth, and love of the Father which they, which we have received from the Son through the Spirit. Verse 22, And when he said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Of course, the real question is the question that should be asked of this officer. Do you strike the high priest like that? Verse 23, Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. See, he's calling them to be faithful witnesses too. There there are no faithful witnesses in this text except Jesus. But if well, so if I have spoken well, why do you strike me? Jesus is requesting a fair trial. If, If I'm in contempt of court, then file the appropriate charges against me. But if I'm speaking the truth, why the assault? And so he's he's really exposing what they're all about. They don't care about truth, fairness, justice. They have an agenda, and Jesus is exposing it here. Because if they didn't have an agenda, if they were after justice and truth, then he would be getting what we call a fair trial, and he's pointing that out. Now, you might be thinking, as others have thought when they've got to this point in John's gospel, instead of responding this way, as he does in verse 23, why doesn't Jesus just turn the other cheek, right? I mean, isn't this a perfect opportunity for him to put his own teaching into practice? 
Now, he was, he was slapped on the cheek. Jesus says, turn the other cheek when that happens. Well, of course, it's a perfect opportunity for Jesus to put into practice what he preached. And Jesus does more than turn the other cheek. He allows these God-haters to crucify him. Willingly dying on a cross for other people's sin is the ultimate example of turning the other cheek. And yet, on his way to that cross, on his way to that crucifixion, he takes opportunities to speak the truth. So those two things are not at odds, turning the other cheek and speaking the truth in love. After all, the grace of God is always accompanied with truth, by truth. So John 1.17 has already taught us this, that both grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Turning the other cheek is not opposed to speaking the truth. Jesus does them both. He's doing them both simultaneously and gracefully. After this, verse 24 says that Annas sent Jesus to Caiaphas, the high priest. By now we know, though, that the true high priest is neither Annas nor Caiaphas, but Jesus. Then John transitions back to Peter. He does a a scene change one last time. And to feel the force of this last episode, this last scene in verses 25 to 27, we need to read them all together. Verse 25, Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Notice that phrase, with him, before he was with them, and now he's saying, I am not with him. At the same time, the real high priest is not being treated like one. The real witness, Peter, is not acting like one. Here we see, as J.C. Ryle put it, quote, the amazing degree of weakness that may be found in 